Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the bringing us together. Thank you for your divine and perfect love that has brought us here. We pray, Lord, that the things that we say here in this next time, the things that we feel, the things that, uh, that happen here are uh, 100% of nothing else but of you and bring glory to your name. Uh, we thank you so much for this privilege and this honor. and We offer up this time uh, back to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at uh, Luke 22 and, and kind of focus in on verses 66 through 71. That if you want to look in your pew Bible, that starts uh, on page 858. When the day came, the assemblies of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together, and they brought him to the council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. And he replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now I'll have to ask him, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord. It was a cold January day. In fact, it was, it was 18 degrees in New York City. And just outside of Manhattan, U.S. Air Flight 1549 departed LaGuardia Airport to the north for a climbing left turn to the south, destined for Charlotte, North Carolina. And just a few short minutes later, the Boeing 320 was floating in the Hudson River. Because of what happened that day, exceptional things, we've heard the name of Chesley Burnett Sullenberger III. Most people just call him Sully. You know, preparing for a flight, especially a commercial flight, takes uncounted hours of preparation. Routes are assigned, crews are selected, tickets are bought and sold, sometimes months in advance. Maintenance logs are reviewed and crews are assigned to fix the problems. Quality inspectors review them until they're satisfied. Flight crews prepare, they file flight plans. The gates must be assigned and counter and gate agents to work them. The aircraft is serviced with food and fuel and water. Baggage is checked and screened as are passengers. The crews pre-flight the aircraft inside and out. Passengers are loaded, briefed, secured. Clearances are requested to push back from the gate, to taxi, to enter the runway, to take off and depart. Flight 1549 departed at 326 that day, just as it had done countless times. And then after the culmination of hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of preparations, in just a few seconds, the aircraft collides with a flight of geese and suddenly everyone's life is in danger. Suddenly, when people are just kind of settling in to get comfortable or looking at the Manhattan skyline, they are faced with the very real possibility of their own death. There is no time for phone calls. There is no time for reviewing the wills. All this is happening right now. And it is very real. You know, 
we've all heard that story, but it's kind of worth retelling. Some call it the miracle on the Hudson. And I think there are moments in our lives that clearly show us God's miraculous work. And this was one of these moments. But it was not a miracle in the sense that many people use the term. This was a moment, though not expected at this moment, it was nonetheless prepared for. One aviation expert had a fascinating insight. He said that the exceptional thing that Sullenberger's power was, excuse me, the exceptional thing was Sullenberger's power of concentration during the descent. He was flying largely instinctively, a highly experienced pilot completely in tune with his airplane. Captain Sully himself said, we didn't have time to consult all the written guidance. We didn't have time to complete the checklist. So the co-pilot and I had to work almost intuitively in a very close-knit fashion without having a chance to verbalize every decision, every part of the situation. By observing each other's actions and hearing our transmissions and our words to one another, we were able to quickly be on the same page, to know what to be, needed to be done and to begin to do it. And because they were tried and tested, because they were prepared, 155 people lived to, lived to see another day. You know, you, you could make a case that Captain Sullenberger had been preparing for this day his entire life. Let me just run some things you might not know about him. Did you know that he had been an Air Force fighter pilot for seven years? He had been with U.S. Airways since 1980. He was a certified flight instructor with the Airlines Pilots and was the Airline Pilots Association safety chairman. He investigated aviation accidents for the Air Force and the National Air Transportation Board. He was named a visiting scholar at the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management at the University of Florida. He runs a safety consulting firm called Safety Reliability Methods. And oh, by the way, he's a certified glider pilot. Something that might come in handy on a day like this. So in two minutes of flight, when that aircraft lost power in both engines, and the only possible landing option was the near-freezing Hudson River, the flight crew knew what to do and what needed to be done, and they did it very, very well. I, I thought you might like a, a little bit of comic relief. I was a pilot myself for quite a while. Uh, I flew for a little better than a dozen, dozen years, and it, it, it kind of just even shudders me to even say the word comparison, but just a little bit of comparison. Uh, I had about 1,300 flight hours. Captain Sully had 19,000 flight hours. But I can tell you that I spent countless hours preparing for things that, may, that, I, that I may never experience, just to be ready for that moment, that, that unforeseeable, unexpected moment when you have to act, you have to act right now, or bad things will happen. You see, I think it's, I think it's part of human nature to prepare. But we make lists before we go to the store, right? Well, I don't, but most people do. We check the weather before we go outside. We, we plan our routes before going on a trip. And expectant mothers will pack a bag and they'll put it by the door, you know, just in case that happens. However, I, I think that with the things we prepare for most are the things that we're really engaged with, the things that we're, capital, that we're captivated by. 
Look at these guys. What do you think they're captivated by? How about this guy? You know, I, I bet you there is a very humiliated wife standing just outside the view of the camera, kind of right over here somewhere. Or how about this guy? I mean, you can't cut hair like that without a lot of practice. In fact, you could say that one is the proof of the other. If you're captivated, if you're engaged by something, you will prepare for it. You won't be able to help it. But on the other hand, if you think that you're captivated or or you claim to be devoted by something and you're doing nothing to get ready for it, chances are you're not really engaged for it by all. Now, Luke 22 is also kind of a culmination of events. It, it, in, the, in the midst of this, this avalanche of things that happen, Jesus acts in total concert with his nature, totally out of who he is. And one of the reasons is that he was prepared. Now, I want to ask you to get your Bibles back out, but let me, just, let me just read the section headings of Luke 22 for you here real quick, if you don't mind. The plot to kill Jesus, the preparation for the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the dispute about greatness, Jesus predicts Peter's denial, purse, bag, and sword, Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, Peter denies Jesus, the mocking and beating of Jesus, and Jesus before the council. And all this occurs in about one calendar day. I counted them. There's about, in about 1,400 words, Luke tells us some of the most significant events in the New Testament. And they all happen right now. You see, the universe had been preparing, had been groaning in anticipation since the beginning of time for this. All history was preparing for this moment of glory, for God's redemptive plan for all of creation. Nothing Nothing God has done in history, especially in Jesus, is arbitrary. His sovereign will prevails. You know, for example, it's not that God didn't say to Jesus, you know, this is as good a time as any. Why don't you just go on down there, see what's going on, and fix things? Instead, God's preparation and plans for for this were set at the beginning of time. The whole New Testament, all of history, are in preparation for what God had set in place to accomplish through Jesus. And Jesus has been preparing for these events his entire life. We're looking at the kind of the human side of, of, of Jesus. That even though he was God incarnate, he needed to prepare in order to invest his life on earth to the glory of the Father. Now, these are probably not new to, to, to a lot of people here, but let's just look real quick at some of the things Jesus did to prepare for this time. Well, first, Mark tells us that his first recorded words that we have in Mark are, the time has come. The the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus understood that there was a, a beginning time 
that he had to go through before the time became right. We know that Jesus spent time at the temple listening and asking questions. Jesus obeyed his parents. If you think that in preparation, try it sometime. He, Matthew tells us that Jesus went into the, into the wilderness. This is, listen, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted. It's not that he went into the wilderness and then just happened to run across the evil. He went into the wilderness to be tempted. Matthew also says that, that when, the, when the devil had finished tempting him, he left and the angels came. And it wasn't, so it wasn't that Jesus said, oh, okay, yeah, that's enough, I'll see you later. He stayed and endured everything to experience that temptation and to prove his power above it. Think about all the times in the gospel, the gospels and Jesus say, this happened to fulfill what must be fulfilled. Jesus took care of himself finding times to rest, to get away, to recharge. And then in one of the last moments of preparation, which we, Luke actually talks about in, the, in this, in this uh, chapter, was Jesus' preparation of his inner circles. This was the defining moment in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. One that Jesus passed, and one that his disciples failed. They went to sleep. Yes, Jesus' life was lived in preparation to, to fulfill what he had come for. But what was he looking, looking at right now in this, in this part of his life? What was he ready to face? Isolation? Betrayal? Opposition? Death? You see, as followers of Christ, we may be led into very similar situations. Now, your mo- moments of crisis may take various forms. You you may be confronted with evil incarnate. You may be confronted with apathy, which in many ways is worse. You may be confronted with physical danger, with family dissolution, with with, with financial crisis, or your life may be asked of you. Or you may simply cross paths with some desperate stranger who desperately needs the word of God. But be assured, your moments of crisis, your moments of opportunity, really, will come. And they may, may very well come without warning. Will you be prepared? A flight instructor was asked once why they use simulators so much in their training. And his response was, well, in the moment of crisis... You will not rise to the occasion. You will default to your training. So what do you do tomorrow? How do you prepare? How do you prepare spiritually, relationally, physically, communally? The Bible has a lot to say about how to live our lives as disciples and and how to live in community. And you may have a favorite passage that kind of helps guide you. I I like Colossians 3. 1 through 16. And we're not going to go through the whole thing, but I would like to highlight verses 12 to 17. And, and if it's okay, I'd like, to, I'd, like, I'd like to read them to you. As Sorry about the font being so small, but it's a long time. Anyway, 
As God's chosen one, holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the Lord of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with all gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. You know, sometimes when I'm studying scripture, it helps me just to look at the verbs, just to see what I'm supposed to to do. So let's take a second and look at the verbs in this passage. Let's look at these. First one, clothe yourself. And then a little later, clothe yourself again. What, what strikes you about that? To me, that is a conscious, deliberate decision completely within your control to put on the characteristics of Jesus Christ. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. In other words, live in community. Let the peace of Christ rule. And a little later, let the word of Christ dwell. You know what that means when he's saying, let the word of Christ, let the peace of Christ? You know what he's actually saying? Don't stop it. It's going to happen. If you will just let it happen, it will happen. Let it happen. Let the peace of Christ, let the word of Christ infuse you. And then my, my favorite of the whole, those whole, that whole passage is, be thankful. I'll offer to you that is the fundamental worldview. That's the, that's the fundamental perspective of someone who knows Jesus Christ. Gratitude, gratefulness. But the challenge is, we actually need to put these admonitions into practice. We need the experience in order, to pre- in order to prepare. One of the things that we're doing as a congregation at this fall, we're going we're to institute a foundational hour uh, between the services, a time to be in smaller groups, to be in classes and prayers and various experiences to help us turn our eyes to Jesus. I think this is a wonderful idea. I commend our session for deciding uh, to take this opportunity, and I urge us all to to participate in this uh, event as a community. But here's another example of the need for practice. Anybody anybody know who this is? Bear. (laughs) That's Bear. No. Anybody know who this is? Van Clyburn. For a long time, Van Cliburn was known as the foremost pianist in the world. In fact, the Van Cliburn International Competition still goes on every four years in Fort Worth, Texas. And it's known as one of the most prestigious competitions in the world. And I heard, a, I heard an interview, excuse me, I read an interview uh, with Van Cliburn once, and he said that he practiced six hours a day. 
And two of those hours were finger exercises. Now think about it. This is the best pianist in the world at the height of his powers, and he spends two hours a day doing finger exercises. Why do you think he did that? It's okay. You see, history turns on small hinges. The things we do, the things we choose to leave undone, can affect others' lives in ways we can't foresee. See, I, I think that we often expect some kind of divine, you know, flash of light moment, something perhaps with the sky full of heavenly hosts and some eternal challenges laid down before us. Well, that could happen. I've, you know, I'm not one to constrain the, the power of the Holy Spirit, but in some ways, I think we take comfort to imagine these dramatic, dramatic climactic things where the sky parts and the earth shakes and we just know we'll know what to do then. But I suspect more often than not, God works in more subtle ways in our lives. He brings people into our paths and presents us the opportunity to be Jesus in someone else's lives. And these chance encounters can have profound consequences. But the larger question is not how to prepare, but what are you preparing for? What do those passengers on flight 1594 and those Bengal fans have in common? Well, to the sports fan, the adrenaline rush of the game, the, the noise of the crowd, the, the hope of victory that, that make them feel just totally alive, totally outside the moment, totally captivated by what's going on. Likewise, those folks on Captain Sully's airplane experienced a very visceral reality that shook them to their bones. Captain Sully felt it too. And he was prepared. If you lived your life with the idea that God and Jesus is a concept, that it's a, an idea, a nice idea, uh, an emotion, even a very, very good emotion, you will discover that you are preparing for earthly and very short-sighted things. However, if you believe that Jesus Christ lives and it is in intimate communion with your soul, that he loves you personally, perfectly, and without measure, you will encounter a love that will captivate you entirely. You will discover a reality more real than anything you've ever experienced. And as you spend time with our Heavenly Father, as Jesus did, He will prepare us for actions of eternity, both in heaven and on earth. Jesus, the Son of God, prepares us for life as God intended. So how then should we view Jesus? Well, actually, the chief priests and the scribes answer that question for us. If we go back to the passage we started with, all of them asked, are you the son of God? And he said to them, 
you say that I am? Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. What further testimony do we need? Indeed. 